Greetings and welcome to the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. I am Daniel Meisler and this is episode 42. I'm going to start with the InfoSec news and articles. So Dropbox was just hacked, actually not just hacked, it happened in 2012, evidently, but the dump has been made available uh, to multiple locations, including Have I Been Pwned um, service, which basically tells you if you've been compromised. Definitely encourage people to sign up for that if they haven't already. Uh, I got an email from them, uh, as did a lot of people, maybe 68 million, actually a subset of that because they're not all using the service. But um, I got an email, but of course I've changed my password multiple times since then. So it's not that big of a deal and it was a unique password. So not too much to worry about, but uh, yeah, 68 million accounts one of the biggest sort of cloud storage offerings out there that's ever been out there and is probably still the biggest. So uh, pretty big news uh, to add to the list of massive breaches of like Adobe, LinkedIn, that sort of scale. If you haven't changed your password recently on Dropbox, you need to do that. Malware infected all Eddie Bauer stores in the US and Canada. Basically, all 350 stores in North America were uh, compromised with POS uh, malware and basically compromised credit cards. So uh, if you shop there, you should uh, be watching your credit, which you should be doing anyway. So uh, Wicked iPhone vulnerability came out. Uh, They're calling it Trident because it was three O-days all at once. Um, So basically all you needed to do was to follow a link to become instantly jailbroken and compromised. And it was uh, basically the spyware put out by this group called NSO out of Israel. And it's just a software package. Like it's a a business that they run doing spyware, compromising systems using various techniques, various exploits. Um, And then they install this software that monitors like text calls, apps, like passwords, like all sorts of stuff. Um, So it's evidently been in the wild since iOS 7, which is frightening how many systems this thing has probably owned. Um, And the craziest thing about it is this is just what we know about. Like what other exploits and packages and, you know, methods of doing what they do do they still have deployed and they're still getting good data back from and still getting good success from um, not to mention other companies similar to them. So you kind of just have to assume if you're thinking in this sort of mindset that your stuff's probably out there. Like, um, well, not only is your data probably out there, but you have to assume that with enough scrutiny, someone could get onto your device. Like, Maybe iOS is the most secure of the, the options that we have, you know, compared to Android or whatever, but it doesn't mean it's secure. It means it's the most secure and those are not the same thing. So uh, definitely patch your iOS 9 if you haven't already. Um, some people like me are already running iOS 10. I assume it's uh, already updated. Um, that's what I understand from some brief reading. But um, also don't follow links from random people. Um, And if you have a bunch of hacker friends like I do, probably shouldn't follow their links anyway. 
could be testing a new phishing service or something. Um, Lockheed ransomware targets hospitals in a wave of attacks. So more ransomware, more hospitals, more problems. Uh, St. Jude hack. So this is really interesting. So basically a pacemaker was tore up with vulnerabilities, uh, including the ability to crash the device and drain the battery, like remotely drain the battery, which is crazy. Um, cause it just kills people. And then crashing the device that also kills people. So, um, this company called Muddy Waters does marketing around how bad a vulnerability is. This this is a crazy business model. Like, it could have put this in the other section where you talk about concepts, but uh, I'll keep it here in the news. Ba basically, this company called Muddy Waters finds vulnerabilities using a company, you know, security researchers. It finds vulnerabilities or hears about something that's really, really bad. Then they do this massive marketing and PR push to talk about how bad it is for the sole purpose of crashing the stock. And then they short the stock and then they make money and then they pay the people who help them. So MedCon is a hacker group that finds vulnerabilities um, in, in products like these and then goes to a group like Money Waters and shares the profits from the shorting of the stock. It's like, holy crap, like this is a real thing. This is a legit business. Um, well, it's weird use of legit there. Like it's legit as in, yes, it's not illegal. It seems like it's not illegal anyway. But is it legit? Well, it depends what your moral compass is, right? But just fascinating that this is an actual business model out there and people are doing it and it's working and they're making money doing it. Um, Wiki technology can detect keystrokes. So this is pretty cool. So um, it's using multiple wireless uh, antennas and receivers. And this is my understanding. 97% accurate in the lab. You basically had to type fairly slow. In the real world with lots of people walking around and stuff, it was more like 77% accurate instead of 97%. But the wireless technology based on broadcasting and receiving can tell the difference between like keys being up or down. This is my understanding of the research. Fascinating stuff. So basically, if you have enough knowledge of the signals in the area, just imagine extrapolating this out to, you know, farther down the line or you're saturating the area with enough signal. You can sort of learn and see what's happening in a room without being visually connected to it, right? Without having optical or visible light, you know, reporting back to you. Pretty fascinating. Cisco patches O'Day flaw exposed by equation group. So we've been all, all through that, uh, basically that group. Um, yeah, release some O-Days for Cisco stuff. I talked about it last last week and it's been covered fairly well, so I'm not going to go into it. Um, CrowdStrike interrogates, or no, integrates um, machine learning-based engine into VirusTotal. So this is pretty cool. So VirusTotal a while back, they basically came out and said, 
you know, you guys are using all of our stuff, but you're not giving back to the project, which was the whole point. So we're turning you off. And they basically shut off all these companies. And a lot of them, that's all they had was kind of virus total with a GUI. So they freaked out. And now CrowdStrike is, um, has, has a cool machine learning based engine. And now they're using that engine to power or to help power VirusTotal. So they're basically giving back now, which means they can now use VirusTotal again. So that's pretty cool. Um, like to see more people do that and bring their IP into it and have it, you know, go both ways. France and Germany calling for European decryption law. This is crazy and in a, in a not good way. This is basically, they're freaking out about the terrorist threat. And the way their lawmakers are responding is by saying encryption is bad and we need to be able to decrypt things. Um, but if you follow anything by um, the Gruck, uh, which you definitely should on Twitter and his blogs and the various places he talks, it, you could follow most of it just by looking at Twitter. But the Gruck talks a lot about how it's, it's, a, it's a shell game, right? It's not... <laughs> It's not encryption. It's not the fact that we can't encrypt things that's the problem. It's the fact that we don't have enough coverage of the unencrypted stuff. We don't speak Arabic. <laughs> we don't speak the languages of the people doing the damage, you know, even if it's not Arabic. We don't have enough linguists. We don't have enough agents. We don't have enough analysts. We don't have enough core resources to just do the basic due diligence for this stuff. And if you look at the various situations, which the Gruck does a great job of breaking down, um, most of these attacks, they're, they're using regular phones. They're not encrypted. They're not using some, you know, high-speed AES 512 or some shit. It's basic law enforcement, security intelligence. Um, well, just intelligence. It's basic coverage of the fundamentals that is not being done. But the lawmakers are like, well, I want to get my name out there. I want to make a difference. Uh, encryption is bad. Let's, you know, pin the tail on that. And that's what they're doing. I mean, the FBI is trying to do it here or, you know, our government's trying to do it here in the US and it looks like Europeans are falling for the same sort of trap. And it's very unfortunate. Multiple vulnerabilities found by IOActive and BHU routers. Uh, so IOActive, but that's where I work, by the way. Um, but it did come up regularly in my news feeds. So trying not to overemphasize stuff from IOActive, but also not ignoring it when I see it in the feeds. So this was basically a story that went around the, uh, the circuit. So this router would accept any session ID. <laughs> That's that's ridiculous. So it doesn't matter what you send for a session ID. It would just be like, that's a session ID. Checkbox confirmed you are validated uh, for sending me a session ID. Um, also, when you bounce the box, the SSH root password re uh, returns back to uh, a commonly known default Uh which is also ridiculous. Anyway, there's a whole write-up. Um, that might be in the notes. I, I can't remember. Uh, possible to use DNSSEC for DOS, uh, DDoS attacks. So 
probably familiar with uh, DNS-based DDoS, right? You just hit a DNS server because it's UDP. You don't have to have, you know, the connection set up. Uh, so you can spoof the source, right? So you just tell uh, whatever, a billion DNS servers that um, so-and-so has a question and then so-and-so gets melted by all the responses from a billion DNS servers. Um, well, it turns out you could do it with DNSSEC as well um, if your stuff is not configured correctly. So something to think about if you're thinking about implementing it. Kind of doesn't matter DNSSEC or not. It, the, the whole point is that DNSSEC, by implementing it, uh, doesn't by default just protect you. you. You have to configure it correctly to make sure you're not able to be used in one of these DDoS attacks. Uh, Praetorian put out a top fives to comp top five ways to compromise networks um, little write up. It was pretty cool. It was a uh, weak domain user passwords, name resolution attacks like WPAD, um, local admin attacks past the hash, clear text passwords of memory, Mimikatz, and insufficient network segmentation. It said that those were the top ones. Pretty interesting. I think I mostly agree with that list. Um, Although my NetSec is not, you know, where it needs to be. So I, I'd, I'd love to talk to people who are uh, more NetSec-y oriented as opposed to AppSec. But um, yeah, interesting list. Uh, Pokemon Institute shows some Grim Insider threat stats. Um, yeah, so this is cool. Actually, I did a whole write-up on this. I think it was the same report. But 62% uh, 60, of users report having access to data they shouldn't. 43% of businesses need more than a month to detect people accessing stuff they're not supposed to. Um, and these are all my summaries too, right? These are very casual sentences. It's because I, I wrote the summary. San says only 9% are happy with their insider threat controls. Uh, Mimecast says 45% of executives say malicious insiders um, is the email risk they're least ready for. Um, oh, and the Gruck says that the equation group insider threat option is lame. So the Gruck does not believe, this is different than a previous story, by the way, just kind of blending them together. But uh, the Gruck does not believe that the equation group leak was another Snowden. He doesn't believe it's an NSA insider. Uh, basically, his belief is that it was a jump box that got compromised and had too much stuff on it. So that was uh, InfoSec news. Moving on to technology news and articles. Um, Alphabet is launching a ride sharing service. So Alphabet um, is what we all used to call Google, but now Google is a subset of Alphabet. So Google is Alphabet. I'll get used to that eventually. Hopefully they won't change their name again. Um, but they're launching a ride sharing service, uh, but it's different. It's going to compete with Uber, but it's different. So here's how it's different. It's actually, it's ways integrated. So when you're doing Waze and you're going from here to there, it knows where you're going because you've put it in a destination. Well, it looks for other people along the way and you basically do ride sharing. So it's like 
people doing what they normally do, but adding a rideshare component that's integrated directly into Waze, which you're already using anyway, um, which I think is fascinating. I, I wonder how they're going to deal with the issue of like, are you using Google Maps or are you using Waze? Like, it's like Google Maps is competing with Waze um, and Google Maps does not have the ride sharing option, but maybe they'll <clears throat> clean that up with an integration or a unification or something. But uh, pretty interesting that Uber is going to have some competition from Alphabet on this um, in a related but different model. Um, Tesla teasing product announcement, which is a solar roof. Man, Tesla. I fucking love Tesla. I, they're just doing the most amazing shit. So they're completely revolutionizing. By the way, sorry for the cussing. If like anyone cares about cussing, uh, I think I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm trying not to go overboard with it, but... Uh, there, I probably have some listeners who are Christian or might have kids in the car, and I apologize about that, um, but I don't think I want to cut it out. So hopefully that's not an issue. If it is, actually email me and like uh, I'll consider making adjustment. Uh, truthfully, I will. But um, yeah, continuing on with Tesla. So first of all, the cars, okay? they they kind of force the issue and everyone's doing electric cars and it's going really well and their new models coming out are are looking amazing especially the super affordable one talking about battery tech upgrades that can get us you know 300 400 miles on a charge talking about battery tech upgrades that get us like 300 miles on a few minutes of a charge i think like volkswagen's working on that for like 2019 so like the whole electric car thing is just booming. I, I think in large part because of Tesla. Then they do that house battery thing, which I've not heard much about, but I, I think they're having trouble like making enough or something. But a house battery where you basically have solar from wherever, actually it's probably gonna work with the roof thing, but you have solar from whatever, or you have power coming in from wherever, and it goes into the battery and then you have an algorithm that says, okay, when do you pay the most for electricity off the grid? And then it takes you off the grid or you don't use energy during that time, you take it out of the battery. And then when you, when it's super cheap, you use energy from the grid and then you recharge overnight via whatever method, you know, solar or wind or whatever. So it's like super awesome. You have this battery in your house and ideally you be living completely off of the battery and not using the thing, or even better, you'd be charging the battery and selling energy back to the grid, right? Well, now they're teasing a new announcement, which is a solar roof. Like they're going to actually build it. They're going to deploy it. They're going to do whatever. They're going to do the Tesla for the car, but for solar roofs, uh, which means it won't be niche. It won't be like, there's 12 of them deployed for a company. It'll be like ubiquitous. Um, and that is just epic. And it's, of course, going to probably tie to that battery, the house battery. So you can sell the energy back to the grid. Like, here's what I think. Tesla, um, not Tesla, Elon Musk. Well, also Tesla, but he's dead. So that's different. But um, 
Elon Musk is like who everyone cool wishes that they were when they grow up. Like there's no more rewarding thing that I can think of, or it's pretty hard to think of a more rewarding career than moving cars from gas to electric, putting batteries in the houses of everyone to sell energy back to the grid and harness the wind and the sun doing solar roofs and whatever other shit he's got like that, that loop thing, fucking space elevators, who knows what he's got going on, but he's doing stuff that matters in a way that just, that makes Steve jobs look or yeah, Apple in general, even even Google and Alphabet and all those folks, it just kind of makes everyone else look like they're either not very good at what they're doing, or in the case of Apple, who's very good at what they're doing, they're not aiming high enough, right? Apple comes out and they're like, oh, I have the most amazing thing. I mean, like I'm an Apple fanboy in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And I think Apple's just amazing in so many different ways, but they're not fixing energy for the world. I mean, they make great products so you can, whatever, do podcasts and write stories. I mean, it, it's massively awesome. It, it's the most awesome thing ever, except for when you put yourself in a category with Tesla and with Elon Musk and people like that. I mean, just no comparison. Enough of that rant um, or fanboy session or whatever that was. Instapaper joins Pinterest. So this is cool. Instapaper, I used to use it way, way back in the day. Um, currently not using it. Currently using the Apple integrated stuff, uh, which I which I think is superior is to have something OS integrated that goes across your platforms and all that kind of stuff. But um, the fact that it joined Pinterest is really powerful. I also don't use Pinterest, but I did refresh my account, update my password, and just uh, vowed to sort of mess with it a little bit just to see what's up with it. Um, Pokemon on a major decline. So Pokemon Go, uh, I think major decline still means there's like 76 billion people using it every second. But um, I think like last week it was like 86 billion. So some sort of major decline there. Not sure if that's going to turn into... Um, a complete just crash and like it goes away and it was, you know, a, a supernova or if it just means it was adjusting back down to, you know, normal levels. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. Volkswagen's 2019 electric car is supposed to get <clears throat> 300 miles on a 15 minute charge. This is what I was talking about um, earlier. That's crazy. 300 miles on 15 minutes and that's 2019. So you got to imagine you know, everyone's fighting against that. Who knows what Tesla will have by then? Uh, just really exciting. Uh, Jira now allowing you to convert tickets into job postings on Upwork's marketplace. Isn't that crazy? So Jira, you put in a ticket on, <coughs> excuse me, I'm still a little bit sick. Um, put in a ticket on Jira, into Jira. And, um, and it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so bug, input validation, um, PHP, or whatever. 
Um, it should prompt you actually why you're using PHP, but it's a separate topic. But um, let, let's say it, you have that, right? You need input validation on this particular set of code, uh, piece of code that faces the web or whatever. And you have the option to say, create a Upwork ticket for this. So Upwork is, uh, used to be Elance. It's basically outsourcing of jobs, right? You know, cat sitting, um, or maybe not that, but like pretty much anything you need. The logo design, coding, build a website, whatever. You could do it all on Upwork. Well, this thing will link your Jira ticket for whatever needs to be done to your code to a job request on Upwork. Super, super cool. Dice is a Ticketmaster competitor. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what Dice is. I've never used it, but I'm going to go sign up because I hate Ticketmaster. Um, all their tickets sell out for anything that's remotely interesting in negative five seconds. And then they're all on like, like eBay uh, four seconds after that. So it's... I don't know what kind of scam Ticketmaster has going, but it's super lame and I'm glad there's a competitor. Uh, Amazon piloting teams with 30 hour work weeks. So this is interesting. I, I think there's probably two prongs here. One, they, um, they're they curious uh, whether or not it actually makes you more effective or you, whether or not you can have effective teams with 30 hour work weeks. That's one thing. <clears throat> um, second piece is they're getting massively flamed and it's probably hurting their retention over how bad they are at um, to their employees, overworking people, just being super total dicks. Um, so they're getting flamed for that. So they're probably like, hey, we need a PR sort of move here. Um, what, are, what are we going to do? Um, <clears throat> so they probably came up with, Hey, let's do this pilot. Um, one way or another, it's going to help us. One, it makes us look like we're, we care about work-life balance when in fact the whole rest of their, their, the whole rest of their business is still doing whatever, 400 hour work weeks. But, um, they're, <clears throat> they, they have this pilot doing 30 hour. So, but if it turns out, turns out, hey, actually the 30-hour people, <clears throat> it's actually the whole team. It's the manager. It's everyone. If the 30-hour teams are doing better than the 400-hour teams, maybe we actually do pivot. So I think they benefit either way. Philips Hue motion sensors for the house. So I got a bunch of Philips Hue stuff <clears throat> on a completely isolated network because IoT devices frighten me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so these things, uh, you basically put them by the front door, you put them whatever, from room to room. And as you're walking by, it's going to turn on the lights in that area. So you can actually just wake up in the middle of the night, walk around and it'll light up the area where you're going. <clears throat> so super excited about that. I'll probably get a couple. Uh, dirty network for dirty devices. Yeah, I mentioned that. So do not go and deploy this stuff without having a very, very segmented network. It's really a, a very bad idea. 
Zuckerberg demoing his own personal Jarvis for the house. So I think this month sometime, uh, Zuckerberg is actually going to, so he has a uh, project. He does a, um, a yearly project, which is basically to do something really cool uh, for a yearly project. So was, I think last year it was learned some Mandarin. And this year it was to make like a super AI Jarvis whatever, 20, 2001 uh, AI type system for his house. <clears throat> and when when we say he was going to make it, he actually went and grabbed like 20 engineers or 200 engineers. I don't know how many people he used from Facebook and said, build me this. This is what I want. So that's what he had made and it runs his house and he's actually going to do some demoing of it. Now, I'm super excited about this because uh, the book I'm writing and a whole bunch of blog posts and just a lot of my thinking in general is around AI and AI assistance <clears throat> and stuff like that. So I'm really curious to see what they come up with here and especially how it's going to relate to the Facebook platform and the future of mobile and like tech in general, like how they're looking to pivot that AI assistant into the Facebook story, especially when they don't own a mobile platform. That's going to be fascinating to me. <coughs> Excuse me. So next one, Apple News and Articles. No home button in the 27 iPhone. This is the rumor. <coughs> I've wanted this forever. Evidently, uh, Johnny Ive has as well. Should be one sheet of glass. You should touch it. It should just work. Buttons are silly. Um, I actually like the side buttons and, and the power button and, and the volume buttons because they can be used as like the shutter for a camera and stuff like that. I especially like them on the iPhone SE uh, and the old iPhone 5. But um, the front should absolutely be one pane of glass and, you know, no cutouts, no buttons and that kind of stuff. Uh, so really happy to see this happen. Hopefully they pulled off really well. Uh, microphones are a big problem for tech like Siri, Alexa, Google Now. Um, it actually turns out to be a big problem with AI assistance is that you can't just speak normally, right? The, the, rate, the way real AI should work is you should just be sitting around sort of thinking, talking out loud to yourself and like shit should happen, right? You should just be like, yeah, uh, make it brighter in here. Um, yeah, turn up the song. Um, find me more music like this. You should just speak normally. But if you're like, you know, turn up this song or make this louder and it does what Siri does oftentimes and it's just like it interprets it completely incorrectly. You're like, find me more music from this artist. And it's like, looking for Chinese restaurants in downtown Kiev. And you're like, well, that's not what I said. And you try several more times and it gives you equally stupid responses. <clears throat> Big part of that is hardware and not being able to tell your voice because it's not loud enough. You're not speaking clearly enough or there's tons of like background noise and it's just very confused. So, a lot of these companies are working on the hardware and the microphones to sort of try and fix that problem.
<clears throat> okay, this next one is super cool. Oh my God, I can't wait for this. So Apple buys Glimpse for health record transfers. So I, I'm the way I'm thinking of it, they haven't called it this, but think of like Apple Pay <coughs> for health information. So I never go to the doctor, uh, which is dumb. This is not a proud thing to say. Uh, I just got my first real doctor ever and still haven't done anything with him, but you just got my first real doctor and I'm like 74 years old. So it's very not okay. Um, but when I go in, uh, I sometimes go to the air quote doctor, which means I go to a clinic to get like a Z pack because I have like a sinus infection, like every year or every two years. And I go in, I give them my medical card or my insurance card or whatever. And they hand me a stack of papers and I fill out all my data in like triplicate across like five pieces of paper. And it just infuriates me every single time. <clears throat> and it's always more than six months before I go back and they tell me to do the exact same thing. <coughs> um, and I'm like, that's just ridiculous. Um, why can't I just authenticate with my thumbprint and my phone has my medical data in it? Um, I actually wrote up a, a proposed like protocol for doing this a while back. I actually sent it to uh, Dan Kaminsky and we were chatting about it and he was like, well, actually, I think what he said was that it was too tech focused and not user focused, but I disagree with him about that. But anyway, I have wanted to solve this problem forever. Um, not enough to actually work on it, but uh, well, I did try to design that thing, but it was just a dumb blog post. But um I'm so glad that it's finally starting, hopefully. I mean, I feel like the digital health records thing has been going on for, it's like Linux on the desktop. Like it just hasn't happened despite the fact that it was about to happen for like 12 years. Um, yeah, so I, I just can't wait to see what happens with that. Um, I would love to go into a doctor's office or a dentist or wherever and just Apple Pay authenticate with my thumbprint or Samsung Pay, wh whatever phone you have, like your phone and the cloud service it's connect to, connected to knows what your medical data is. It's live and updated. And the device that you're authing to the, via NFC, it's making a request of certain fields, right? Um, and I think this is how the thing that I designed worked. Uh, it makes a request for certain fields. Those fields map correctly. So there has to be like a mapping, obviously, uh, between what you have and the prompt that you get before you put your thumb on the thing or whatever recognition, iris or face or whatever. Um, it tells you that the recipient is requesting this information. And you're like, yep, here you go. Thumbprint, boom, right? You got it. You're done. It took a second and a half or whatever, five seconds. Instead of writing your social security number down five times and handing it to someone who makes, you know, $0 per hour and doesn't give a, a crap about anything that 
you're doing with your data, right? It's just ridiculous. Who knows what they're doing with that stuff, uh, especially at a clinic. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, all right, so that's the medical device one. Um, Apple may be building micro LED technology for 2017 and beyond. That's super cool, um, kind of. I imagine, oh, oh, so here's what it is. It's basically supposed to be better than OLED. It's a micro LED. They're talking about one micron to like 10 microns in size. That is truly micro, um, very small. Uh, evidently, it's hard to make. And they're still working on it, but they're talking about maybe 2017. So it could be that the iPhone 8, which is, by the way, the um, the 10-year anniversary, next year is going to be the big, big, big iPhone. This one is kind of a meh partial upgrade like the giant one will have a dual lens camera and maybe three gigs of ram or whatever but it's going to be minor compared to the next year but um that could include this micro led display which will be even better than oled and apple devices don't even have oled yet um samsung has had it forever so uh except for the apple watch it does have oled <coughs> Um, all right. Miscellaneous news and articles, uh, really cool presentation called Polyworld, uh, which is basically using evolution to design artificial intelligence. Um, man, super, super cool presentation. Uh, my buddy, uh, Keith, uh, McCon actually, a coworker at IOActive turned me on to this presentation because I was writing about some AI stuff. And um, this this thing, he basically wrote this engine where you create a life form and you give it parameters like you need to be able to walk across, you know, the ground. Um, you need to be able to get this ball as fast as possible and you're going to compete against these other things um, doing the same thing. And the AI starts to build appendages onto itself. So at first it's like the stick and it can't really do anything. Right. And then you give it another appendage and it could like flop from side to side or whatever. And then it gets a ball component and it can roll a little bit, but it's a little bit hobbled or whatever. And it just keeps going through these iterations until eventually, um, you know, you've got competition kind of like robot wars, right. Where you're competing for, you know, some of them are smashing the opponent and stealing the ball. Some of them are going after the ball really fast. Um, just crazy stuff. Uh, it actually made me think of an idea that I thought would be like one of the coolest things ever. I should actually do a blog post on it. Um, which is we need a generic framework for doing genetic algorithm evolution so so basically i don't know if you ever heard me talk about this but um there was this competition where they had a genetic algorithm team building a bolt uh, a boat hull competing against like 10 master boat builders right so they had to build a, a hull that moved the boat through the water forward extremely fast 
but it also was resistant to temping. And then they had a, a genetic algorithm do the same thing. And the way genetic algorithms work is by reproduction with, with uh, randomness, right? Just like evolution. So it would basically have two bolt holes. They would reproduce um, and have lots of offspring. And I might be, you know, simplifying this too much, but I think this is the core of it. The offspring would be different you know, lots of different ways, right? So maybe they, I don't know how many they reproduce. Let's say 16. And let's say two of them worked really well, right? Which means that they went fast forward and they didn't tip over or whatever. Well, they would reproduce those together and they would keep exposing them to the environment of the water. And uh, so all these super expert boat people came up with their thing and it goes, Right. And they're like, all right, there we go. We've got whatever, 200, whatever, 600 years of experience. I don't know how much it was. Some massive amount of boat expertise, top in the world, building this thing. And the boat works. Well, the genetic algorithm runs, the boat fails. It reproduces again, second generation, third generation, fourth generation. Well, it reproduced like 200 times. Not sure the exact numbers, but let's say like 200 times. And it destroyed the experts. It made a boat that went way faster and tipped over way less. And how long do you think that took to run? I don't think it was very long. It was damn sure less time than 600 years of the experience of all the joint experts. Now imagine applying that to everything right? You need a better project. You need a faster car. You need whatever, a tire design. You need like, there's so many, like thousands of things that this can apply to, but there's no universal interface for describing the problem and then describing how the reproduction should occur and then testing the offspring against the environment. Like, I feel like those are the pieces that need to be built uh, to produce, like, imagine like Ethereum, the Bitcoin thing, but for genetic algorithms. That would be so sick. Oh, man, I'm doing a blog post about that. And I'm actually making a note right now. Um. Yeah, so I, I think that would just be fascinating. Um, <clears throat> my voice is killing me right now. Um, all right, exploring ideas. I'm going to go through this fast because I'm like dying right now. But uh, security matrices. So one of the things I'm doing on the OWASP IoT project is I'm looking to link together the story and narrative around how attacks happen and then use taxonomies to link together the various pieces. So for example, attack surfaces, threats, and vulnerabilities, and then potential impacts. So I'm going to say, if you attack a potential, this attack surface, whatever it is, um, let's say firmware, the firmware attack surface, the threat um, would be that 
you find a, uh, a clear text password uh, just sitting in a default file uh, in, in the file system and it's unencrypted. And now you know how to get root access to the system. Um, what is the vulnerability? Um, clear text password present on file system or something like that, right? What is the impact? Um, attacker can use this to log into uh, 26 million devices of this type on the internet because the thing was found. So the idea would be to build a sentence. And the sentence goes something like, by attacking underscore attack surface, um, this type of threat actor could use this type of vulnerability to do this type of impact. And wherever there's that underscore in the, the this type comes from a list of vulnerabilities, of threats, of attack surfaces, and they're all being linked together like this matrix. And that is what I'm looking to do for the IoT project because it is a project of projects, right? So uh, we already have a vulnerabilities list. We already have an attack surfaces list. Um, so I want to build the list of potential negative impacts, the potential threat actors, and those sorts of things, and then link them together. Um, I'm also working on a similar project with uh, Jason Haddix on uh, game security. And um, we're designing that thing the exact same way, right? So attack surface is the local file system. And if you modify the local file system, you can have infinite life. If you have infinite life, you can um, go around and kill everyone. Or let's say you have infinite damage on your weapon and you can go through and kill everyone. Well, what does that do? That makes everyone pissed off that the game got hacked. They stop playing. What happens when they stop playing? Your company goes out of business. So you link these things together across attack surface, threat, vulnerability, and you could tell a story that I, I think would be super cool for these type of projects. Um, unbranded future vision. So the idea here is that, uh, there's a blog post I just put up. The idea here is that if you want to think about the future, think about a future that is so far advanced that there is no branding on the cool shit that's there. That it's so integrated into society that you don't even really notice or none of the people in that society really even notice it anymore. A good example of this would be like a Star Trek door that opens, you know, that, you know, it opens from the center out to the edges, and then when you walk through, it closes back towards the center, right? Now, who invented that? Probably some company. Maybe they made some money off of it. I don't know. Maybe they're all socialists by then. I, I have no idea. But the point is, when someone walks up to a door, they just expect that to happen, right? And there's no thing like, you know, power door provided by Verizon. That shit doesn't exist, right? Um. So the idea is to think about those sorts of things. An example I have in there is like you leave work and you talk to your thing and you say, hey, um, you know, order me some takeout. You're talking to your personal assistant. You say, order me some takeout. Uh, I want it ready when I get home. And uh, I'm going to watch this movie when I get home and blah, blah, blah. And all that stuff. You're imagining this scene taking place in a movie. 
And this person is just in the car, um, you know, a driverless car. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to watch this movie and tell Cheryl that um, I'll see her in the morning at 9 a.m. And you're just talking to your personal assistant. And all these things are happening. You get home. Uh, the movie is displayed on the wall. Your takeout is waiting for you. You know, you you sit down for your meal. <clears throat> and you're describing, you're showing all these things happening. The actor is not even phased in the slightest. They're just talking normally and shit is happening. That is the way we should design technology. We need to think about what's going to happen in that way that will become so ubiquitous and obvious that it's completely uninteresting to the actor playing it in the movie about the future, right? If you're thinking about a whiz bang, where the technology is visible, the technology is, you know, something that they're interacting with in, in a sort of obtuse and unnatural way. You're thinking about it in the wrong way. The technology should be invisible and ignored and obvious to anyone from that society. And that is the tech that we should be building. Next one, unsubscribe risk. This one is a crazy one. I, I did a tweet a while back about um, how often as a security person or an IT person, when you get an email and it's like, hey, come to this conference. I noticed you stopped by the conference last year and you should come by this. And oh, and by the way, we got this, this data sheet you should download. And you're like, man, this is the fourth time they sent me this this week. These guys are spammers. Scroll to the bottom, unsubscribe, boom. How many times do you do that? A week, a month, or a year? A lot. Even security people, they do it a lot. Well, do you understand how phishing works? It works by getting you to click on links. Well, normally the links you get to click on or that you're trained not to click on are something like, click here to transfer these free available funds into your account because I'm a, an account manager in Nigeria. And it's got like a little underscore, click here. And you're like, ha, ha, ha. I'm not gonna click on that because I'm smart. Um, but if you get a regular looking spam marketing email, you immediately go to unsubscribe and click on it. And I'm like, well, why don't you just do an unsubscribe-based phishing campaign? I bet you that shit would work. So moral of the story there is, uh, Watch out for how often you just click on unsubscribe links. Uh, use the power of your email client <clears throat> to roll over the link and make sure it's not like malware.com or some crazy unnatural permutation of the domain <clears throat> uh, that's that could potentially be malware before you click on it. The relationship between cross-site scripting and CSERF, cross-site request forgery. <clears throat> so my buddy Jason uh, <clears throat> just did a podcast for Bug Crowd uh, a couple days ago and put it out. Uh, it's uh, called the Big Bugs Podcast uh, from Bug Crowd, and he's the one who does it. Uh, Jason Haddix, if, if you guys don't know him, he's super awesome. Um, and great speaker and great at doing this kind of uh, public stuff. So 
definitely recommend you check out the, the podcast. But this episode he did was on cross-site scripting. And specifically how it's a lot more serious than people make it out to be, uh, which is a topic that I've, I've loved for, for a very long time. I, I did a series of presentations on it uh, back probably five years ago or so. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that he talked about was he did some uh, like three, I think, scenarios and described how bad they are. And a couple of them were like giving yourself administrative access and stuff like that through a cross-site scripting attack. And what I wanted to do, because uh, he, he did a good job of explaining it, but while he was talking about it, I realized the distinction that is like really important to make. And I kind of wanted to be there with him and talking about it at the same time. But the distinction is this, because <clears throat> this is really, really cool. Basically, there's two steps to a really advanced, nasty attack of this type. Um, so imagine yourself inside of an admin portal for a system that is multi-user. And this was one of his examples, was like a multi-user system. Imagine you're in this thing and you're an admin, okay? So it's one of, the, one of the buttons there is create new user. Well, you go to create new user and it pops up a bunch of fields you, f you fill them in and you submit a post. <clears throat> the post request goes and creates the user in the database, you know, sets a password, whatever it does. But here's the crazy part. <clears throat> it's just JavaScript. That's what it is. It's JavaScript. It's a JavaScript request sent via post, usually, in a lot of these portals, that creates this user and gives it like whatever access. Let's say that in the create user field, it had a checkbox for um, access level. And it had the boxes, user, um, advanced user, admin. When you click admin, what do you think that is? More JavaScript, right? That's all it is. So you can capture this request, say in Burp or whatever, you can look at it and you see, well, I'm just filling out these fields. That's, that's all it is. Well, his whole point and the whole point of how serious this could be is that you could use this to automatically grant yourself credentials and privileges and access to systems and compromise them using JavaScript. Now, he also talked about chaining them with like CSERF. And this is where I wanted to get involved because it's where I figured out where the distinction is. Here's the really cool part. <clears throat> the CSERF piece is the step one that allows you to make the request. Okay. The CSERF is what makes it so that when you send, by the way, the best name for this is JavaScript injection or forced JavaScript execution. Um, I, I'm actually starting to lean towards um, JavaScript injection only because you could do capital J, capital S, lowercase i, like SQL, um, S-Q-L-I. So J-S-I. That is a way better name for cross-site scripting than cross-site scripting. But anyway, let's say you have this attack, you have it put into JavaScript, um, and you, you get someone to click on it. <clears throat> well, it's going to go and make a request coming from that user, of course, um, 
that is what has to work. That request coming from that user has to be accepted by the server to go and run. Now, if you have JavaScript um, or if you have CSERF protection, that's probably not going to work, right? Because that they're not going to necessarily send and probably won't send or shouldn't send the CSERF token that's required to make that request get, get accepted and executed. So CSERF is the avenue of getting the payload to run. If you don't have the CSERF, it doesn't work, right? Let's assume that it does work. Let's, let's say there's no CSERF protection and now you could write in and now you're executing. Well, now you're just running JavaScript and you have to sequence it correctly and, and hopefully, ideally it's only one step and not like four steps or something. But you could, there's actually techniques you could use to do multi-step as well. But the second piece is the reproduction of that legitimate JavaScript event that creates a user. Now, this is the key part, okay? If you're in a web interface and you create users, you're probably just using JavaScript to do it. And all you have to do is capture that. That's your payload, okay? Then you link that to a request that comes from someone, hopefully bypass or just get through because they don't have any CSERF protection, and then you're good. But it's the two pieces. First, the CSERF attack, and then the payload being the XSS. And I think the chaining of those two, it's really important to realize that they are distinct um, and that the legitimate action that you want to take within the platform is your payload for the cross-site script, which I wish was called JSI. So that's it for exploring ideas. Um, again, definitely go check out the Big Bugs uh, podcast with, uh, with Jason. So some InfoSec tools, um, Dawn Scanner is a Ruby auditing tool. Yaoso is a web app assessment tool, Needle, is an open source framework for testing iOS apps. And PSHTT is an HTTPS best practices scanner and it's command line based. So think kind of like a Qualys scanner or whatever, but, uh, but command line. Um, InfoSec projects, this one's cool, APT notes. So it's GitHub, got the link here. It's basically a whole bunch of collected papers and, and notes and analysis on the various APT campaigns that have been out there. It's like the actors, the tools that they use, super cool. Uh, tech projects, <laughs> this one I absolutely love. It's called Hipku or Hypeku. Yeah, probably Hypeku because it's actually turning any IP address, including IPv6, into a haiku. So it's definitely haiku because rhymes with haiku. So um, so the idea is if you have like an IPv6 IP, they're so hard to remember, um, but you could actually just put it into this tool and it will turn it into a haiku for you. Um, now that's not actually practical in any way, but I, I still think it's awesome. InfoSec reports. So Ponymon put out a uh, AppSec report and I did analysis of that on uh, 
on the blog under my security report analysis series, uh, the results would not be surprising to anyone in AppSec. Uh, it, it's still a decent read and I recommend you check out the summary on the blog, but it's, uh, it's going to be remarkably unsurprising. Uh, AppSec is not funded. It's funded way less than NetSec. People don't know where their apps are. It's basically a exercise in depression. Uh, InfoSec Talks, the Black Hat 2016 videos are up. Um, got the link there to the YouTube. Um, announcements. So I am epically close to finishing this book and publishing it on Amazon. Um, <clears throat> I just learned the difference between copy editing and proofreading. Turns out they are very different. Uh, proofreading is fixing what you've written in terms of basic mistakes. So like you left off an apostrophe or you have an extra one, the difference between it is and it's and that kind of stuff. Copy editing actually fixes the structure of your sentences. Like it'll, it'll fix a paragraph for you. Um, it'll fix things for readability. It's, it's way more advanced and it requires a, a much stronger skill set. So I imagine like an editor would go through phases of first you learn how to proofread, then you learn how to copy edit. And then there's a level above that, which is like, yeah, everything you wrote here is wrong. Let me rewrite it for you. Um, but those things are very different. Uh, recommended content. There's a presentation on SlideShare called Assholes Are Killing Your Project. Um, I did a blog post about it called Total Cost of Asshole. It is the coolest thing. Um, if you have someone in your org who's mean to people, rude, uh, maybe they have some sort of ego or they have some sort of reputation or they think they're cool or whatever. Um, they think they're famous. They're, you know, air quote rock star or whatever, but they're not nice to people and they treat people badly. They make them feel bad. They blame others, all this sort of drama. Basically, if you have an asshole on the team somewhere. This is the type of thing that happens. 48% of people decrease their effort. 47% of people worked less. 38% dropped their quality. 66% declined in performance. This is like for team members that are, that are on the team with the asshole. 80% um, lost time worrying. 63% lost time avoiding them. 78% became less committed. 25% quit and 20% of witnesses to the person quitting quit as well. So this is known as the total cost of asshole. And the basic idea goes like this. If you have an asshole like this, they tend to be good at something. They're either good at talking or they actually have some valid skill. But the lesson for this presentation, which I, I, I really believe in, is they are probably costing you way more than you're getting from their actual skill or, or set of skills. The odds are that they're so poisonous to everyone else that you should just get rid of them or give them a come to Jesus talk and, and turn their life around and, and hopefully fix it. But you can't just let it continue. All right. Uh, inspiration. Closing it out here, inspiration, there's nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. That's by Peter Drucker. 
And uh, finally, Schrodinger's backup. The condition of any backup is unknown until a restore is attempted. All right, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you do like the show, please recommend it. You know, tweet it out, whatever. Tell some people. Uh, it's on iTunes. Get on the website. iTunes is probably the best way. Podcast app, whatever you got. And uh, I will see you next time.